Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Xander? Hello. The transition issue is uh, very complex, and you have a certain position in it generationally and professionally, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess ideologically, everybody's kind of got like a different frame of mind in considering what transition is and what being trans is, and um, so I'm really grateful to be able to get your insight and add it to my understanding of the entire issue, which is complex and fraught. It is. um, So I'm 55. I'll be 56 very soon. So there's the generational piece. Are you a cancer? I am. I'm a double cancer, actually. What does that mean? Uh, Let's see if I remember correctly. My mom was all into this stuff. So my birth sign is cancer my my moon moon is in cancer cancer. okay yeah yeah and then my sun is in sagittarius okay which i think is what is the fire part right (laughs) because a double (laughs) cancer is sort of like uh, i should be yeah quite like a moody person who stays home and bakes a lot of bread or something but (laughs) i'm neither of those things i do like to i do prefer to be at home than anywhere else in the world that's for sure Hmm. but uh yeah are you there um, and I also started my medical transition when I was 39 years old. So that's also a difference, right? In that hmm. um, when we talk about like children going through a social or medical transition, like maybe teenagers actually for the medical part and um, young adults, so I was 39. So it's like I lived in the world as a, as a lesbian or I, I use the term dyke for all those years. I, I came out as lesbian when I was 14, maybe just about 14, around 13 and a half, 14 years old, and had my first girlfriend when I was 14. So I was very much just, you know, doing the lesbian thing. It didn't really dawn on me that there was that, any other option. That would have been in the mid 80s. Uh, that would have been the late 70s. Oh, okay. Which is a different era than the 90s where I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I was, um, let's see. So I was born in 1966 so Hmm. yeah so that that's that goes way back so things were very different and um you know we were we were just starting to back in the in the mid to late 70s just starting to challenge um i shouldn't say just starting we were continuing the challenging of gendered norms Mm -hmm. around what could a girl or a woman do, you know, somebody who was female, what could they do? How could they dress? What kind of occupations could they go into? And so I remember in school hearing a lot about, you know, I could grow up to be anything and anyone. I could wear whatever clothes I wanted to wear, right? There was really an explosion of that. I remember going into department stores and they actually had a rack of clothes right between the boys and the girls section at JCPenney with these, um, the, the brand of the clothing was called Garanimals. 
they have them now, but they're very different. They're very boy and girl. Back then they were very androgynous and, and there was little labels on them like an elephant or a giraffe or hippopotamus. And you found a, a top with one of those animals and the matching a bottom with the same animal. And that's right. We wore earth shoes, right? Brown shoes, um, <laughs> bull haircuts. I mean, like it was, <laughs> there was a sort of a flattening almost of, uh, there were still people who were very girlish and very boyish, but there was a whole bunch of us that were sort of like in that, I don't know, maybe you'd say androgynous kind mm -hmm. of presentation. So that was definitely me. Was there um significant amount of uh, disparagement or bullying that you had to deal with uh, being a lesbian in the, in the 70s and the 80s? I dealt with bullying in grade school, not because of anything that was about gender or sexual orientation. What I mean by gender, like my gender expression, you know, the, any masculinity or something like that. Mm -hmm. I received a lot of bullying in grade school because I had been paralyzed as a kid. Um, I contracted encephalitis following an MMR vaccination um, where I ended up with rubella, the German measles, and I had to be put into a medically induced coma. And when they brought me out, I was paralyzed. And so I, I walked funny, right, funny. And I talked funny because I was actually paralyzed straight down the left side of my body. So when I went back to school in the third grade, I missed first and second grade. Um, I was bullied because I talked funny. I walked funny. And but by the time I was in, let's see, sixth grade, I was done with the wheelchair, the crutches, and the leg braces, and I was the fastest girl runner in my primary school. So oh. I was like a little Forrest Gump, you know, running down, <laughs> you know, breaking out of the leg braces. Um, and uh, so that, so that, you know, but I was, I was bullied because of that. I actually became a bully as a result. But hear me out, no daggers yet. What I mean by that is little kids or kids who were being picked on, I should say, would come to me and say, so-and-so's picking on me. So I became like the bully of the bullies. Oh, I would yeah. Bully the bullies. Vigilante Batman style. Oh, yeah. No, I love superheroes. <laughs> yeah. Somebody referred to me once as a Robin Hood bully, right? Mm. That I was... I was protecting the more vulnerable kids, the smaller kids, the, you know, the kids that were kind of, you know, chubby or whatever, whatever they were being picked on for, because I knew what that felt like. And um, I never wanted to do that to anybody. But I, I didn't have a problem with scaring the crap out of bullies hmm. who ended up mostly to be cowards anyway, like, hmm. you know, which is not a surprise, right? Mm -hmm. the, the bullying is typically just a, a shield, right? It's like a protection layer. Which I know now, so I, I wouldn't do that right anymore. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't understand. I just didn't like people picking on the kids. Yeah. And was it was it a shock or a surprise or uh, uncomfortable to realize your sexual orientation was not heterosexual? No. Um, I I ended up. I actually did like boys quite a bit when I was younger and uh, like sixth, seventh grade. But then I was uh, considered a juvenile delinquent. I was doing juvenile delinquent things. And so I got sent off to a group home uh, for about a year and a half, almost two years where I was living with all girls. So there were about 42 of us living in this sort of in the countryside, living in these homes, and then all being picked up every morning and taken to our own school. And so I was sort of maturing. I was like, what, 14, 15 years old. I was maturing in this all-girl environment. And um, somebody had told me that, you know, there was things, some people had girlfriends. And I was like, oh, I, I, was, I wasn't 
taken aback by it, but I was a little surprised and, um, you know, went in Rome. So, you know, I got myself a girlfriend and um, and it just sort of stuck. You know, I liked the, the company of of the girls when I went back to high school. Um, I sort of, I guess, had a choice in some ways, like, well, I could stay just dating the girls or I could date the boys or maybe both. Right. That wasn't wasn't a bad thing even then. And so but I, I didn't know what to talk to boys about or how to talk to them. And so I thought, eh, I'm mm. not even going to bother with it. So I just stuck with, you know, dating or having girlfriends and then eventually, you know, having more adult relationships with women. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I have been together almost 20 years now. So I've oh. been in a long term relationship. But as far as like bullying with uh, around sexual orientation, gender identity, I mean, no, I I didn't go to high school for the full four years because I was in that girls' school, right? So I wasn't in public school for very long um, because I was there probably mm, maybe my sophomore year and a little bit of my junior year, and then I. I got kicked out of my high school, went to an alternative high school, got kicked out of that school, and then went to an adult school, adult education, and then thought that was stupid and left, and then got my GED. And so I didn't do very much of high school, but when I was in high school, I was I had a girlfriend. She was a cheerleader. Um, I had a fake ID in a car. I was going up to West Hollywood. I grew up in Los Angeles and going to a bar called Peanuts on Santa Monica Boulevard and watching all the drag shows. So I was very much embedded in all that. But if you think back to that time, well, you probably can't. But if you 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 know what I'm talking about, probably if I mention it, like we're talking about the early 80s. And while I'm in high school, you have Boy George. Right. And you've got David Bowie and you've got Freddie Mercury and you've got hair bands. Right. Yeah. Um, And so men wearing mascara and big fluffy hair and and skirts and singing like, you know, gay anthems like Erasure. And you know what I mean? It was a Duran Duran. It was a very different time. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had mod and ska and rockabilly kids walking around campus, you know, boys with mascara on campus was not that big of a deal. And so there didn't seem to be a lot of uh, I didn't see a lot of bullying around that. I didn't receive it. Um, but maybe because I was in school with people who remembered me, how I used to be, right, when I was in ele- elementary school and a little bit of middle school where I bullied the bullies. So I had a reputation maybe a, of the kind of person you don't want to mess with because mm, mm. um, I'm I'm on the same size now that I was then, but I'm more muscular now because of testosterone. But, you know, I'm five nine. I was five nine in high school. So, OK, yeah. And I was an athlete in high school. So, you know. Your story is so uh, checkered, or your past is so checkered. Uh, you, <laughs> like the, the coma, disease, uh, and juvenile delinquency. Delinquency. Uh, w- w- were you just a wild person? Did you just, the world was just boring as it is, and you just like to get into trouble? Um, I was never, I've never been bored. I keep myself very occupied. Yeah. Um, no. I don't want to go into details about it, but I did I did suffer quite a bit of um, what I think people would probably call religious abuse now from a from one of my grandparents that was uh, one of my caretakers, a primary caretaker. Okay. And um, so that sort of, you know, that messed me up a little bit when I was younger. I was angry and so I was acting out. I didn't understand it at the time. Yeah. But she died when I was 13. 
And so it still took me a couple of years to sort of work my way through that. Hmm. But eventually I, you know, I, I'm, I sort of burned through that anger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I got into some trouble. Yeah. But, but <laughs> nothing that led, I didn't do jail time, thank goodness. That's yeah. mostly because I never got caught, but I was doing things <laughs> that, um, that my parents were well aware of and mm-hmm. they were concerned about my well being. So. But things chilled out. You get into your 20s. You I joined the military. Do? Oh, okay. What prompted that? Well, that's another sort of story. Um, I was in a relationship with a woman who was much older than me. And um, it turns out she was an alcoholic and a physically abusive person, which I didn't, I didn't understand or know about. I didn't grow up around that addiction or, you know, physical abuse in that manner. So um, my parents were divorced, so I never saw any sort of physical stuff between my parents. And so I didn't realize that that kind of stuff happened in a relationship. I was naive, I guess, in that way. And so I was, um, I, I was afraid for my life and I wanted to get as far away as I could, as quickly as I could. And the military promised me that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Technically what I did is I got down a, a piece of paper. I sat down with a piece of paper and I wrote pro con lists and uh, one was suicide. Uh, one was commit a federal crime because I knew it'd be better to go to a federal prison than a state prison. Somehow there's more, you know, maybe Amenities. bowling alleys, something. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, I was like, what was I? I was, I was 20 years old when I was doing this, by the way. Mm. And um, and joined the military and joined the military one out. So that thankfully I went into the Coast Guard and and had, you know, you know had a had a good time. So. The, okay, so this is, uh, I'm just ball, uh, spitballing. So this is, uh, what, you're born in 69, so this is like 89 then? 86. 86. So I, I remember the Clinton era, don't ask, don't tell, like the, it was a debate, gays in the military. What was your take or that your was experience? Okay, yeah. So, so I was in the military prior to don't ask, don't tell. Um, commonly referred to its nickname within the community, at least within gay and lesbian communities, the witch hunt days. But the Coast Guard was Department of Transportation, not defense. Now it's Homeland Security. So it is a separate, it's an armed force, but it only comes under the Department of Defense um, in certain times, like certain times of war. Um, so the Coast Guard is a domestic service. We, yeah. They rarely go overseas. We, they, we do go overseas, but not as often for the yeah. same kinds of things. And so under the Department of Transportation, they weren't really doing the same witch hunts as the um, Department of Defense branches were doing. So, so in, I, in the I didn't 80s, feel they, as... were, they were targeting uh, gays and lesbians in the military. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. what were they doing? Uh, just kicking them out or putting them yeah. through some sort of punishment? Or Yeah, typically you'd show up at a base and you'd either be given a piece of paper or a verbal instruction of the places you're not allowed to go in town. And they would be like, you know, the gay bars and the lesbian bars and the peep shows and the, hmm. you know, the, 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 the nudie bars, you know, those kinds of places that were always right near military bases. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like literally in San Diego where I was serving, there's a gay bar across the street from one of the Naval stations <laughs> 
um, which used to be, I think, the boot camp years ago. So, I mean, it's just, they put it right there. It's too tempting. And I think they call it the porthole or something like that. It's still there. Oh, um, <laughs> but um, so, you know, when I got to San Diego, there was a list of places. And thankfully, they provide those because then you know where to go. You know, yeah. um, there were two lesbian bars in San Diego back then. And so, you know, I, I knew where to go. I didn't go, but I knew where I could go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you you weren't under threat as a coast a coastie. Um, I was not under persecution. Threat as a coastie. Okay, yeah. no, no. Thankfully, you, I mean that's not to say that there weren't coasties at the time who might have been. It depends on the command. Yeah. But I was I was not. I was for very fortunate. Were you politically active with regard to uh, the gay lesbian uh, etc. community uh, in the eighties and the nineties? Was that a thing that you were interested oh, yeah. in? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first thing I was involved in politically, and this was before I went into the military, actually, because I went into the Coast Guard and I was 20. So between when I turned 18 and before I went into the military, shortly after I turned 20, I did have a couple of years where I was able to be active in some things like because uh, you have to be 18 to stand at like a table asking for people to sign petitions, things like that. Yeah. And so the first thing that I was involved in was um, getting people to sign petitions to uh, incorporate West Hollywood. West Hollywood at the time in Los Angeles County was unincorporated. And so the police services and the fire services were coming from Los Los Angeles County, like the sheriff's office and the county fire department. Um, and, and you know, we, we won that. So West Hollywood is its own incorporated city with its own mayor and its own, you know, uh, police and fire services. But it wasn't back then. Um, I was also involved in some of the youth activities. So growing up in Los Angeles, um, we had, there was a, it's still there. I think I'm not sure what part of Los Angeles it's in anymore. I think maybe it was in Long Beach, Long Beach, excuse me, back in the time. But they had a pen pal club for gay and lesbian teenagers. And so I would I would write in and then I'd be sent a name of somebody that I could write to. And so I did that a few times uh, when I was a late teenager. Um, hmm. And I'm trying to think of some other things. I, when I was in the um, alternative high school, so between regular high school and the adult school, I did a short stint in the alternative high school. And there were a bunch of gay and lesbian kids um, in that school. And so one of my good friends was also a young lesbian. And she had an older girlfriend that was like, probably in her early twenties and we were like 16 years old. So, um, and so I would go over to her house cause she didn't even live with her parents. She lived with her girlfriend. Hmm. And so I would go over there. And so through that, I was introduced to a lot of older um, lesbian women, you know, still young twenties, late teens. Um, and so we were involved in, in different efforts, but more on the recreational side, like softball team and things like that. Okay. Uh, yeah. But the politics, not so much until, I got out of the Coast Guard. Okay. Yeah. Which would be the 90s or so? No, I was only in for two years. I was medically discharged. I got injured on the job. Oh, so wow. I, was out by, I was out by 88. Um, Were you so wrestling a with a whale or something? Punching no. a sea lion? <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Some people are like, you, <laughs> you tripped in the puddle. Um, no, I am. Um, you don't have I, to answer. Um, Just trying yeah. to figure out how Coast Guards get. Yeah. Well, 
Back then, the Coast Guard was a law enforcement arm of the Department of Transportation. So one of the other nicknames of Coasties is Smokies of the Sea. We're like <laughs> police on the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're like police and firefighters on the water. So my job, I was an EMT and a firefighter and a boarding officer. So law enforcement is what I was doing. Oh, wow. Okay. First responder stuff. The Coast Guard does search and rescue. They do drug running. Yeah. 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 So. Was it adventurous? Was that an adventurous time? Yes. It was two years? Yeah. 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 Especially I mean, I was in, in San Diego. San Diego. Nice. Yeah. 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 So how did, how did, did being a lesbian, how did being a lesbian, how did, how did it, it in your thirties you come across transition and how did that make sense? Mm. Did you, did you know, were you introduced to it? I'm sure in, in Hollywood you've known tr- transsexuals. For yes, a while, but you never thought about it as something that you would do. No, because I only saw uh, drag queens and um, female impersonators, right? So people who were doing like Cher and Barbara Streisand impersonations, and then I and I knew about transsexual women and I knew about crossdressers, but it wasn't until I was probably I'm trying to remember. We'd probably have been maybe in the mid 1990s when I, a friend of mine in San Diego, moved away to San Francisco and came back with a new name and looking and sounding very differently. And I was like, huh, I was like, what's going on there? And somebody explained it to me, but it kind of went in one ear and out the other. It didn't really compute. And then I saw a documentary, You Don't Know Dick, uh, which features trans men. And that was in maybe... 96 and that made a little more sense but i sort of was like oh that's interesting and then in 1997 somebody showed me a book called called body alchemy by lauren cameron a transsexual man who's a photographer and he took a bunch of pictures of him and other trans men and then i was like oh those men in that book i remember them from that documentary and it sort of it planted a seed, so to speak. But again, that was 1996. And I didn't start testosterone until 2005. Mm-hmm. So it obviously didn't prompt too much, but it was something in the back of my mind. Um, and then I went to the women's bookstore when I was in college in Denver in uh, 1997, 98. I went to a women's bookstore where Leslie Feinberg was reading from the book Stone Butch Blues. And um, it's somewhat autobiographical, but not entirely. And in the book, there is a story of like a very butch lesbian, right? A, a masculine woman who is working like as a man was actually taking testosterone. And I think maybe was binding or had top surgery. And I remember talking to Les uh, Feinberg at the bookstore about, you know, all these different words that were that she was using. And one of them was transgender. And she explained it that transgender, and again, this is in mid-1990s, right? So the context is different than now. She explained that transgender, a person can be transgender because they transgress gender norms. Well, I mean, as a masculine woman, as a dyke, I mean, a very butch woman, uh, so I thought I wasn't as butch as, you know, the butcher of <laughs> the group. But um, the idea was that made sense to me. And I was working in the GLBT student services office at my college in Denver in the nineties. And so I thought, Oh, well, I guess I'm trans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so that was around 1998, actually. Um, 
yeah, or 90, 97, 98. And so I took on sort of a social identity as trans, but I had no intention of doing any hormones or anything like that because I it didn't make any sense to me. I, I could be trans because trans just meant I was transgressing. Well, what and what did that social identity do? How did it serve you? Like just having that that label, that title, that conception of yourself in relationship to society. It didn't change much of anything. Um, and I didn't use it as, a, as an identity in that way. Yeah. Um, it was just more of like a, what would you say? Like a, just a piece of, right? A, a piece of, of how I was presenting. It was more like gender presentation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than like who I was. But I did stop calling myself a lesbian at that point in time. I, I, my preferred term at the time, which is now considered problematic, but I still say it, it was tranny queer. Um, and so, you know, I don't use queer that much anymore, but I do call myself a tranny all the time. Hmm. Um, but again, no idea about, I knew about hormones. I was actually being exposed through the GOPT student services office to a lot of trans people. And in Denver, Colorado, they have something called the gender identity center, which has been there for a long time, mm -hmm. you know, a few decades. And so I, they even have a conference in Denver every year for the trans community. So I was going to things like that and I was being exposed to that community. Um, well, I guess this community now is a trans man, but I, I was sort of on the periphery of it at that point, even though I was in the community. Due to the political nature and the um, certain, one might say, authoritarian uh, currents within the uh, transgender, trans um, conversation, there are groups that have started up in the last few years that want to separate the gay and lesbians from the, and the LGB from the rest of the so-called acronym or initialism. Um, but it's what you're describing in the nineties was that uh, almost, uh, I don't, this probably, I know this is not completely accurate, but the trans trans community was kind of within or a subset of the gay community. There was a friend, friendly relationship. There was, well, they're just kind of in, you get, everybody was kind of just in, in mixers constantly. And trans was just kind of a subset of the gay and lesbian community or. Mm, not entirely. And it, and it differed um, geographically, right? The smaller the community you lived in, the fewer, places for coming together you had and mm. so that would sort of force the issue a little bit but in denver denver was a very you know it's a metropolitan city had a big big gay and lesbian community um and trans community i'd say that there was some variations on that so for example you could have people like me who were females but very masculine women who were maybe trans identifying um, but still within the realm of like the lesbian kind of understanding of that. Hmm. And we would be in like gay and lesbian space. There were always drag queens, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, the transsexual women, but a lot of times there were separate bars that had the cross dressers, the cross dressers would go out um and you know like every, I, I i've been to many many lesbian bars over the years and i don't recall i don't recall ever seeing a cross-dresser come into a lesbian bar i'm sure it happens but i never witnessed that um hmm. in the larger cities there were gay bars and lesbian bars yeah. and so you know i when i lived in smaller 
location, smaller cities, things were more, I, I wouldn't say homogenous, but we, it was integrated. Um, We might've sort of parsed ourselves off into little clicks within the establishment, but there was, you know, there was some of that going on. And again, in the big cities, not so much, but there were opportunities for people to come together, but I don't know how, um, I don't recall how welcoming everybody was of all that. You know, I know within lesbian separatist community, which is where I sort of found myself in, in my thirties, it was, there wasn't a big love for the transsexual women. Right. Because they weren't women. We didn't want them in our space kind of thing. Like I never said that, but that was sort of the sentiment of the group overall. Lesbian separatism. I've, I've heard of it. What, what was it like for you? What was the reigning kind of uh, th- theory behind it and oh. reason for it? Hmm. My, under- my, my recollection was that the patriarchy was bad. Yeah. And that meant men were bad. And so a lot of, a lot of women I knew, they went off to live in women's land and they spelled women with a Y W O M Y N or they would spell it like womb in or, um, and yeah, so it was, you know, I mean, pretty cliche, like man haters, you know? Hmm. (laughs) Um, and it's interesting because I wasn't actually like that. Um, most of the negativity I've experienced, I had experienced in my earlier years was all from women. So mm-hmm. my father, my, uh, you know, my, the men in my family were quite loving and warm and the women were quite cold and mean. And so when I went into the lesbian community and I, I have, I think it was because my friend back in that school, when we were 16, I think her girlfriend and those women, I think they were separatists. So I sort of just sort of by default, I ended up in that community and um, but I never really took to it, but I didn't real I didn't really realize until a little bit later that there were all these subcultures in the lesbian community. And once I realized that I sort of branched out a little bit, but it was hard to not constantly see or run into or be involved in activities if you were part of the lesbian community that incorporated the separatists in it mm-hmm. because they were just part of the community. I'm I'm sure that it's the case that gay community and lesbian community kind of just operate differently. But there's uh, a pattern that I've witnessed of lesbians being very politically active or having a, it seems a little bit more politically active than, than gay community. Typically, I don't know if that's true or not, but mm. I don't know, yeah. but I would imagine, well, you know, during the, um, during the early eighties with, um, with, you know, act up, with all of the issues HIV. going on around yeah. HIV and AIDS, yeah. you know, there, there was a lot of attention that had to be diverted to, you know, healthcare issues and making sure people were getting fed and their laundry was being done. And so a lot, a lot of lesbians sort of turned towards becoming caregivers for individuals on at a community level. Hmm. And um, so there was a lot of diverted attention there but there was a lot of activities going on. And I think that ACT UP was largely men, right? Gay men and some lesbians. And then ultimately I think it, you know, became just, you know, gays and lesbians and and allies, of course. Um, Mm. But, you know, within, I remember hearing a lot within lesbian community, this um, slogan, which is the personal is political 
Um, I believe it was Kate Millett that said that. Mm -hmm. um, and she was a lesbian singer songwriter. And so that was a very popular, you know, slogan to hear people mm -hmm. saying or having bumper stickers about it. So I think that really did, there really was that kind of sentiment within certain elements of lesbian community that the personal is political. And so to be politically active in the world mm. was like something that was highly regarded. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, from what I'm gathering, I don't know your entire autobiography, but from what I'm gathering, it seems like you're action oriented rather than theory oriented or slogan oriented. It seems like you were involved to, to do things rather than to proclaim things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've studied theory. I have, I have, you know, degrees, but they don't stick with me very much, you know, like I learn them and then I just, I take what makes sense mm -hmm. and what I, I find to be applicable and I just sort of disregard or discard the rest. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm much more of a, a doer than a thinker. Yeah. So I mean, so, I do think about things, but yeah, yeah, I don't spend I, I my mean, time doing that. Yeah. Well, I just I have a like kind of a slogan of my own about like the activist communities that kind of actually divided into pot clangers and dish dishwashers, you know, and the, mm. the there's a bunch of people that like to clang pots, but when it comes time to actually doing the work, they they kind of disappear and stuff. And yeah, if if I were in that scenario. I'd be the one making sure that everybody was drinking water and knew where the bathrooms were. So <laughs> sort of very hospitality yeah, sure. oriented. Yeah. Oh, I, I love ushering. Oh my God. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, basically like orienting people. I like that kind of job of making sure like, okay, don't forget to take a rest and get your water and here's the bathroom and, okay. you know, say hello to so-and-so and introducing people to, so that, that was actually more of my role. Through, I mean, it still is in a lot of the things that I do. Mm -hmm. So I naturally fall into that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you had these seeds and of uh, the idea of transgenderism and transsexualism and transition, and you're aware of them. But how did it become more and more present in your consciousness? Let's see. Um, so I mentioned that one friend from San Diego, right? moved away, came back, new name, sounding, looking differently. Then I went off to college and I met, right? Cause I, I had seen the book, I had seen the film, right? You don't know Dick, but now I'm actually meeting people. I'm in college, mid to late nineties in Colorado. And I'm meeting a couple of trans men. That's how they talked about themselves. And um, I didn't care for them too much. I didn't like their attitude. They were I'll give you an example. I, I was running the Speakers Bureau through the GOBT Student Services Office, and I invited this one trans man to be on a panel with me. And so he sat next to me and put his feet up on the table in a classroom. And he started to talk about how people are more disrespectful to him now. And I kind of turned to him and I said, well, maybe if you didn't put your feet up on the table, like in a public space, like, you know, I was just so, <laughs> was like, so bothered by him. Um, hmm. So... So I, I, to me, it looked like that wasn't a really good option. You know, like what happened to that person that they'd be like that? Um, I thought it was the testosterone. That's one of the things that I got from the separatist community that's, that sort of stayed with me was that testosterone was poison and it made men violent. 
And, uh, you know, I read that article in Ms. Magazine. It told me that testosterone was poison. It was written by Alan Alda from MASH. And um, so I believed it. I believed those kinds of things. And hmm. so I was reluctant to – that was part of the reason I was reluctant to do a medical kind of transition because I thought the testosterone would make me violent. And I wasn't so – I didn't have something called like gender identity disorder. That's what it was called back then. That didn't make any sense to me. Um, so transition, the medical transition didn't seem like the right route for me. I was just going to stay trans and I was going to, you know, do it sort of my way. Hmm. But then I think I was probably in my mid, my mid thirties. Yeah. Right around 36 years old, 37. And I think I hit some sort of threshold where it was like a tipping point happened for me where the accumulation of dealing with, because you had talked about like gender and, and sexual orientation stuff and bullying, like in the context of school and stuff, but I didn't face that. But what I did face was out in public, total strangers, right? So total strangers would confront me in the bathroom, like girls, women in the bathrooms, um, I almost got beat up once in a train station in Los Angeles. It was very scary by, by... a group of teenage girls. <laughs> yeah. Oh, girls. Interesting. Yeah. When I was like 19. Oh yeah. No, they're vicious. Huh. Okay. Um, yeah. And so then it's not all testosterone. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, full circle there. But, um, and, and just the, my, I would get, I would see looks in people's eyes and, the way I would talk about what I'm about to say in the past is I would say people were looking at me with contempt in their eyes and disgust and disdain. I reframe it now and say my interpretation of how they were looking at me was contempt, disgust, and disdain because I understand now that I really have no idea what they were thinking or what they were feeling. It was my interpretation of their looks. However, my interpretation mattered to me. And so the effect that it was having accumulatively, right, over a year after year after year, from say age 16 to 36, I had just had it. I had reached a tipping point where I was like, I don't wanna deal with this anymore. But I didn't exactly know what to do because I couldn't take testosterone because it would make me violent. And so I just started, I, I, I was looking for solutions, but I didn't know what they would be. Three years later, when I was 39, I went and talked to a doctor. Uh, well, I should say I went and listened to a doctor talk in an auditorium filled with trans people, trans men, not on testosterone, on testosterone, wanting to know all about testosterone. And it was like a two and a half hour long lecture on testosterone for the trans man or FTM. That's the language we used back then, female to male transsexual. And at the end of that, I was convinced I could start testosterone because she completely dismissed the concept of testosterone making you violent and aggressive, that it was hormone imbalance that did not right? Not mm. testosterone itself. And she, at that point, had been working with trans patients for about 12 years. So that was 2005. And so I went home immediately and told my wife, I'm starting testosterone, which of course was a bit abrupt, um, considering I had mentioned that I wasn't going to do testosterone for a few years at that mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was kind of it. It was like, my own internalized sense, like, this is before I became a social worker. This is before I had undergone 
too much kind of therapy to get me in touch with like my interpretation of how people were looking at me, my ability to reframe things. I didn't have a clear understanding of that then. And so I really did let all of those looks and the things that people said really bother me. Mm-hmm. I was in a lot of distress, but I wasn't in distress because of my gender. I was in distress because of people's response to my gender or reaction to my gender. So I remember in 2007, I wrote a blog uh, post about saying, I don't have gender identity disorder. Society has a gender identity disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I wrote then. So, and I mm-hmm. stick by it. <laughs> so like, you know, so some people say to me, oh, you don't feel like you were born in the wrong body? No, never. As a kid who went through paralysis, I'm glad to have a body that's functioning. Hmm. I'm glad hmm. to be alive. So no, I don't feel like I was born in the wrong body. Um, do I feel like from a really young age that I was supposed to be a boy? I have no idea because with the paralysis and the encephalitis, I lost all my childhood memories. And my parents uh, told me over the years that I never mentioned things like that. I should be a boy or why aren't I a boy? None of that. Mm-hmm. I was a tomboy, very much so. Um, but I didn't get any pushback for that. I was allowed to be a tomboy. And I know Buck Angel has talked about that. He's a friend of mine. He was allowed to be a tomboy growing up. And I, so there's some benefit to being able to be in families where you're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. So I never felt any sort of incongruence. I just thought my masculinity was because I was lesbian. And I didn't have any problem being a lesbian. My family was totally fine with me being a lesbian. And I'm first generation American. My family's from Mexico. Like I'm Mexican Catholic, you know, Hmm. um, and there was never a problem with me being lesbian or now being trans, never for a minute. Hmm. So if if anybody has a problem with it, they've never said it to me. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I don't, you know, they can have any problem they want with it. That's their opinion, you know? Um, So it's, but yeah. So being, uh, so going on testosterone and becoming a FTM, female to male transsexual, it it wasn't about being a man, like now I need the world to see me as a man. It's just like, I'm just going to kind of, Blanchard, I know it's controversial, but he he made two types of uh, male to female transsexual, one the autogonophile and then the homosexual transsexual, the the latter category homosexual transsexual or HSTS is a man who is so effeminate that it makes sense for him to uh, transition because he, it, it, it makes life smoother for him socially. Um, That sounds similar to what, to what you're, yeah, I, I've heard of Dr. Blanchard. I haven't read his books. Um, and I, I've heard of autogynephilia, but yeah, so the homosexual, I mean, I mean, it, it makes sense in that way because, but initially, I'd say the first three years that I was on testosterone, I didn't want to be a man. Um, I didn't have any sense of being a man, not even a trans man. I didn't call myself things like that. I started out calling myself um gender queer, which isn't as popular anymore, uh, but it was back then, gender queer. And I had been very androgynous, right, as a, as a, as a woman. So the idea of being, um, you know, gender queer was a similar, it was like a, the trans version of androgynous in some ways. And that's also because I was so early in testosterone that nobody was ever going to see me as a man 
right? I was still, I still looked like a dyke for about two and a half years on testosterone. Mm. So my voice was changing. Things are starting to change, but not very quickly. And maybe that's because I was older when I was taking the testosterone. You know, my mm. receptors might not have been as uh, finely tuned uh, as somebody who's like 19, right? And so they might not have been as sensitive. Um, but eventually what ended up happening is as more and more people started seeing me as a man and treating me like a man that started to shape my own sense of myself because I couldn't see myself as a man until I literally could see the reflection back in the mirror and also in other people's response to me and how they treated me. Hmm. Um, and so slowly over the course of the next couple of years, so I'd say about within, it took about maybe two and a half, three years for me to get to a place of being comfortable saying something like FTM or trans man for myself, not just as a community. And then, yeah. And I, I, I didn't start using the word transsexual until a little bit later. And that's mostly because I find it really subversive and it pisses people off and, you know, I kind of like to do that. I'm, I'm a bit <laughs> countercultural. You know, I'm anti-conformity. And so I find it really interesting that when I was younger and anti-conformist, it was, it was rebelling against the non-LGBT community. But nowadays it seems like the people that are the conformists are the com LGBT community in some ways aligned with the corporations and the government. And I'm like, what happened, right? We're supposed mm. to not be aligned with corporations and the government. So I, I haven't really changed much, but but who I'm more antagonistic toward and, and sort of pushing against are now, it's like flipped. It's kind of a strange phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I still, happening on make sense of so it many sometimes. different levels of, of our society. Yeah. The the left is now the, well, not the, the left left, but the liberal or, or areas are now the, the more conformist and um, authoritarian for one reason or another. Well, it's almost like there's maybe two different kinds of liberals. I mean, I think I hear people talk about there's liberals, like classical liberals, as like, yeah, Dave, yeah. like Dave Rubin would say. But then there's also the progressives. Mm-hmm. Like they, I've heard people separate them out. Um, it's like, um, are you willing to torch a building or not? Like, let's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> let's sort of separate out, you know, and do you support the torching of buildings, right? Like, that doesn't seem like a very liberal stance. Hmm. But at the same time, revolutions, you know, have been all kinds of violence towards people and buildings, right? Property happens in a revolution. So it's just sort of hard to know, like, is this a righteous revolution or not, right? How to decipher those differences. And um, that's just not in my scope of practice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I, I stay out of it, which like, I don't work with children or teenagers either as a licensed clinical social worker. It's like, I stay out of that world because I can. Mm. I don't get too embedded in that because I'm, I'm not very, I don't think I'm very good at arguing. I, I, I didn't learn debate tactics and so when somebody has a really strong argument, it takes me a while to figure out how to respond to that. I'm, I'm not very quick. You know, I can't just back and forth like people do. I do not know how to do that. So I usually just go, huh. And I ask questions. Well, tell me more about that. Or, you know, how do you see that playing out in your life? I almost become clinical with it sometimes because I really want to know. And other times because I just want to hear people like say it out loud, how crazy 
and corrupt their thinking is. Mm-hmm. You know, because when people make a, I remember I heard years ago, there was somebody who called into one of those talk shows on the radio saying, we should kill all the homosexuals. And the, the woman who was um, taking the call said, how do you propose we do that? And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting tactic. She didn't call him and she didn't dehumanize him. But at the same time, she was sort of like, let's let's pull this out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, how really wacko are you? <laughs> you know, like what where where have these ideas come from? What's yeah. formed your opinion about these things? So I'm I'm more with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I practice that um, way of engagement as well it's less stressful i think right it's more it's a patient it's more of a patient game but it's like debate if i feel like i'm being you know put on the spot and yeah yeah, it gets my heart rate all going and yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. so the the your your story of transition is it's novel i've never heard somebody describe their transition it was just so gradual and mm. so, and you're older. I've heard so it many more... times. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I've, I've heard it many, many, many times. And as a matter of fact, when my wife went with me to see that doctor to talk about getting the testosterone that first time, and I told her why I wanted to transition, and I, and I looked at her and I said, is that an okay reason? Have you heard that before? And she's like, many times, but nobody talks about it. Because you're supposed to fit through the eye of the needle, right? Oh, I've known since I was this age, I feel born in the wrong body. Um, You know, I was going to kill myself if I couldn't transition. And so none of those things were true for me. And so, yeah. Hmm. But I've heard many people since they come to me, right? You've probably had this. People will say to you, oh, yeah, that's happened to me or I agree with it. But they're not going to say it publicly because they don't want to be on the receiving end of any attacks. Okay. Cause there's a right way uh, yes. to, to do this. Yes. There are some challenges to that now because people will say you don't need gender dysphoria to transition. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, I, I understand that. I, I don't know exactly what they mean by, by it, but mm-hmm. I, I could listen to that, you know, kind of talk, you know, to hear what they're, what they mean. But it's, yeah, there's a lot of people, I mean, in a nutshell, people would say, oh, so you basically just transition to escape homophobia. That's what people have said to me. And it's like, well, if you want to really reduce it down. <laughs> but it was more about gender than, than your sexual orientation, it sounds like. It was just the way that yeah. society saw you. Um, was yeah, just, it's, there's always yeah. friction there. Yeah, it's about it's a bit rough to be a masculine woman in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it is now. I, I would imagine there's some similarities, but maybe that's I have no idea. I'm just going out on a limb here, but maybe there's something still happening because there's such a there's so many more um, people who are female who are wanting to not align with being a woman. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what their sexual orientation is. But I wonder if it has something more to do with their the way they express themselves. They, they don't want to be held to a rigid gender role. It's like, well, but we can you can scoff at gender roles. You can rebel against gender roles. 
um, I mean, I did it for many, many years. I think I just reached a threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that being 16 or 17 or even 22 is a threshold necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but maybe it is for them, right? Everybody has different distress tolerance levels. Yeah. There's a uh, contingent of uh, this conversation that I have not explored, and uh, and I've gotten some flack for not interviewing um, them. Uh, they're called trans widows. It's uh, women whose husbands transition years, decades into their uh, relationship, and uh, there's a lot of friction there. I haven't covered it because... R- Talking about like a divorced relationship or talking about a marriage is just so complex, especially if it ended badly or if there's a lot of stress. It's just too, it's too difficult for me to get into. But and you're free to completely ignore this question. But it just sounds like your wife accepted you and that it wasn't a big problem for her to conceptualize herself with a male version of you or a manlier version of you. It was just yeah. it was it was pretty. Yeah acceptable or, or easy for her to yeah to change yeah yeah we've actually done um we've spoken together on a few of occasions you know talking about about this and mm. yeah not the same issue um you know it's interesting thing about the trans widows um i haven't heard it in that exact way um it, it does really it does frame it in a way that probably makes sense um because in some ways they might be feeling abandoned. Um, one of the issues that, that, I, that I run up against quite often as a clinician and in clinical spaces is that the, oh, I was gonna, I wanna use the, I wanna pick a better word. Um, hmm. Sort of the, I can't, it's not coming to me. So I'll say like rejection of or denial of grief and loss in the transition process right so like as a person who went through a transition Mm. there's a there was a certain level of grief because i lost things i i lost a certain i lost my relationship to the lesbian community i i i lost the role that i had right my i was my father's daughter Mm. now i'm my father's son um and now my father has dementia so He's a little confused about his son now coming to visit him because he's mm-hmm. probably wondering where his daughter is, right? And we're getting to that point now. Um, and so when I, I lost, you know, there's a certain way in which I could be in the world that was a protective factor, right? Being a more masculine woman, um, I was I was less um, I was less likely to face a particular kind of harassment. You know, um, but I was more exposed to other kinds of harassment. But as a man in society, like there's it, it, it like there's no shields at all. Like there's there's more there's been more um, engagement towards me as a man in society in that more aggressive way mm-hmm. than previously as a woman. Right. So there's a sense in which there's a loss of relationships or roles or a loss of of um something it could be a job who knows what it is and our our family members are going through a similar process right Mm -hmm. so a wife is probably grieving a loss but there's this there's this attempt to basically say no 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 you're not allowed to feel that way you know your wife is becoming her authentic self and that person's thinking but my husband where's my husband right and so i think we should find a way to recognize and help people process that grief and loss 
without labeling them transphobic or they're in denial. But I also think trans people, we need to find people outside of our relationships and our families, maybe for kind of support that can help us recognize and be compassionate and empathetic towards our family members who are struggling. I think parents struggle, partners struggle, spouses, children, siblings, everybody. I think a lot of people struggle, but it's it's perceived of as being a, a denial of the reality that this trans person is emerging into their authentic self. And it's like they can emerge all they want and people can still have grief. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. these things. You can have both of those things. Yeah. yeah. And the idea of a, a trans person having grief and feeling a sense of loss there's this there's been this fear i don't know if it's happening so much anymore but in the past there would have been more of a fear around if i don't say the right thing to the therapist i'm not going to get that letter i need to get the hormones or the surgeries i need so mm-hmm. it probably would have been too frightening to bring up a sense of grief or loss mm-hmm. and well in in the um the framing of trans care is of affirmation care in and of itself kind of uh mm-hmm incentivizes not looking at the difficulty and therefore being dishonest about the difficulties, the real human uh, factors that uh, take time and, and uh, need uh, processing space. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, in incorporating more of the explorative, right? The exploratory functions of, of psychotherapy into working with anybody really. Yeah. Um, I think what's happening recently that I don't really like is, people are labeling exploratory kinds of therapy with with people identifying as some sort of trans or gender non-conforming people thinking maybe they have gender dysphoria um you know trying to figure out if they do or not that that's being labeled as anti-trans or even conversion therapy and it's like no conversion therapy is never good unless somebody elects to go to a conversion therapist like some adults just don't want to be gay or trans like okay i mean if you think that's going to work for you but um you know forcing people into that is another thing now are there conversion therapists or reparative therapists who are calling what they do exploratory i don't know if they are then we need to make sure to differentiate between exploratory affirmative and conversion or reparative they're mm. three separate things and mm. you know and none of them are actually like i never learned gender affirmation therapy intervention model in my msw program i don't know if they teach that as a method as a model mm-hmm. right and exploratory or conversion so these are all things that people are doing it's more a way of waking making sense of how they are interacting with the client or patient Hmm. Um, and I don't know why exploratory is problematic. I mean, that's our role. Our role is to help the people we're working with explore who they are, all their options, how they're making sense of their past. I mean, it's embedded into what we do as psychotherapists. So I'm not really sure hmm. why there's a problem there um, unless they're connecting it directly to conversion therapy. And I did see that recently. I was on a website recently that listed all of these um, gender exploration oriented websites as anti-trans conversion therapy websites. And I was like, but I know some of those people, those are not anti-trans people. Some of them are actually trans clinicians mm-hmm. who, who do exploratory an exploratory style. Right. 
of therapy. That, that um, and I think that that comes from the activist uh, mindset or framework to kind of reorient the field in order to destroy gates and to open it up to anybody who wants it and to make it accessible to all. Um, but in the long run, that's that's opening, that's making the case for transition even more fraught because there's a there you're going to get a lot more detransitioners you're going to get a lot more regret you're going to get a lot more uh false positives let's say um if if there's no no resistance and resistance mm-hmm. to is too strong a word exploration if there's no exploration if there's no ability to question and to think through and to deal with the, all these subtleties of the process and the reality of the process that's not care. That's not caring for people. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, what, what, what was happening, you know, a few years ago and for, you know, several decades that they refer to as this gatekeeping uh, really was, you know, there were mental health providers out there and medical doctors who were like forcing people to go like through a year's worth of therapy sessions Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that felt very limiting and, um, it's for some people it, it was maybe even unnecessary, right? Like it's, it should be an individual case by case situation. If people don't have comorbidities, they shouldn't be forced into a year's worth of psychotherapy, mm-hmm. but there are alternatives to that. Maybe they could join a, a peer based discussion slash support group with other trans people who are in a similar stage of you in their understanding of their identity or their process of transition because i really do believe that it's good to have a support system right but not everybody needs psychotherapy as a social worker of course i think everybody should go through a comprehensive biopsycho social assessment and that can take you know a few sessions but that the reason for that is gathering up all the information that then informs a social worker to say okay these are the resources you might need these are the referrals I recommend for you. These are the people I want to link you with, right? These are the resources that are available for you, you know, in the community now online even too. So the only way you know about all those things is if you do the comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment and not a lot of other uh, medical practitioners or mental health providers do a comprehensive biopsychosocial. That's, that's basically the, you know, the bread and butter of social workers. Mm-hmm. And so... I say my solution is just get a social worker. Even They don't even have to be licensed because you're not diagnosing. You're just doing a biopsychosocial assessment, but very comprehensive one. And mm-hmm. so you find out, like, tell me a little bit about your schooling and your family and your employment and your finances and your health and your sleep and your diet and your exercise, right? It's very comprehensive. And from there, you find out enough about the person to be able to know what they might need. Mm-hmm. And so, but a lot of, a lot of like, say, for example, trans... Uh, surgery centers or programs, uh, they will have mental health providers, but they won't have somebody that's doing like that sort of case management level of social work that could be doing this, right? Like I'm all for everybody should have a biopsychosocial assessment before going on to whatever the next phase is. And through that, you can find, oh, there's some comorbidities and you can refer to somebody to a psychotherapist mm-hmm. and the psychotherapist can determine, go through the analysis, you know, the, the, whatever, if they meet criteria for depression or anxiety or any of those kinds of things, right? Mm. So it's like, you, I think they could be separated out. The standards of care don't really do that. You know, the WPATH standards of care. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I wish they did. I wish they were more clear on that. Like it's not everybody needs psychotherapy. It's that everybody, uh, it would be a good recommendation for people to do that assessment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that would screw, that would screen out not every person who feels failed by the system. You know, the people who have either um, detransitioned or desisted from moving towards transition. Um, it wouldn't get all of them, of course, but I think it would. Um, I, I don't think we'd have as many as we have right now because of more of the free range um, harm reduction clinics or what they call informed consent clinics. Mm -hmm. They're a bit more like harm reduction clinics, which is more coming from the drug and alcohol treatment world. Hmm. Um where if we don't give them access to these things, they might kill themselves or they're, they might, you know, self-medicate with street, you know, hormones or, or other drugs and alcohol to sort of numb, right? Mm. Um, because with informed consent, you have to be able to know that somebody can consent and that someone has been informed. It's not just signing a piece of paper that says informed consent at the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have a big issue with using informed consent in kind of a maybe lackadaisical way? Well, I mean, that is in order to forestall a backlash on a societal level, or at least within the D-trans community who need, uh, who need services of their own and the rising tide of, you know, like feminism trying to protect women from males entering their spaces, you know, all these issues are kind of at play. And one of the basic things that you're bringing to the table is just like standards of care, just fix that and, and make sure that people have access to the help that they need. And then all these other social issues and, um, yeah, because if you find out during a biopsychosocial assessment that somebody has suicidal ideation and they have since they were 14, well, that's an indicator that maybe they should be seeing somebody mm -hmm. for that. One of the things I noticed about, it's not all, of course, I don't want to paint too broad of a stroke, but I do listen to and I do pay attention to uh, people who have desisted or detransitioned. I, I consider them part of the community, um, and I think that some of them have experienced um, too lax of, of a system in order to get access to hormones without having, again, a comprehensive social biopsychosocial assessment. The other thing that I noticed, though, in a lot of these cases is they do have comorbidities. They have psychosis. They are self-harming. They have, um, not everybody, of course, I'm just saying in general, you know, the people I've been listening to, several of them, um, uh, social, social anxiety, um, generalized anxiety, major depressive disorder, Child adjustment abuse. disorder, yeah, all kinds yeah. of trauma on top of it. And so, you know, it's like, I might have had a little bit of that kind of stuff when I was younger, but I sort of processed it through. So by the time I hit 39 years old, that stuff wasn't influencing, you know, like I, I didn't come in with all that stuff. I don't, I don't have those comorbidities. Um, I think that Somebody who has the comorbidities that, you know, if they're having issues with mental health, you know, with their mental illness, then that that should be treated. Um, sometimes it's in conjunction. There are people who get it simultaneously, right? The cross-sex hormone therapy and the talk therapy and the psychotropics. Um, and for some people, that's perfectly fine. For other people, maybe you do one before the other, right? It's hard to, it's because in the, in the, 
drug and alcohol treatment world, there's a similar kind of questioning about it. It's like, do we treat the mental illness before the drug addiction or the drug addiction or alcoholism before the, like, can you go into a treatment facility on psychotropic medications? Like there are a lot, there's some similarities in Hmm. some ways of trying to suss out, right? It's like, maybe we shouldn't split things like that. So now you have like dual diagnosis programs. And so we, I, when people say, Gender dysphoria is not a mental illness. I don't need psychotherapy. It's like, okay, if you go through a biopsychosocial assessment, they're just going to find out what resources you need and what referrals can be made for you and to make sure you have a good support system. Hmm. Right? It, it sort of takes that little wedge issue <laughs> out of there because mm-hmm. I think there's just resistance and then through that process, somebody might go, oh, that wasn't so bad. And uh, maybe I would appreciate talking to somebody about the changes that are going to be happening to me as I start hormones, as I start or as I start, you know, presenting in a different way, because the world's going to start treating you in a different way. And that might come as quite a surprise and might be uncomfortable and and discombobulating. Mm-hmm. Right. I found it very discombobulating. Hmm. So, and I was 39. I don't know how 19 year olds and 29 year olds are doing all this without any of that support. Because mm-hmm. the peer support isn't enough. It's good. It's better than nothing. Family support is good. It's better than nothing. But somehow having somebody that you can talk to that is a bit objective and has a sort of a breadth of knowledge and understanding of a larger, the larger picture of what's happening. I think can be helpful. I think I would have benefited from that early on in my transition, mm-hmm. but I didn't do it because I thought I don't need therapy. Hmm. So I had the same resistance. So I understand it. I don't, I don't begrudge anybody who has a similar kind of resistance, but I know for myself that it, it would have been beneficial in the early first few years. Mm-hmm. So was testosterone fun or a drag? How, how did you take to it? I, I think I've been very fortunate because when I hear about people who say the testosterone sent them to the psych unit, like, or made them really angry and aggressive, it was the total opposite for me. I was a very angry and aggressive uh, woman, right? Because I was angry all the time because I felt assaulted all the time by people's prejudice. And so I felt like I was walking around with this suit of armor. And I, I haven't said this in a long time because I, I didn't remember, but I just remember now when you asked me that question, in the very early days before I had top surgery, I was binding, I started testosterone, I, I was wearing a compression t-shirt and I said to somebody, I feel like I've a hundred pounds have been lifted off me. Like I was walking around with a suit of armor, you know, basically like don't fuck with me kind of attitude all the time. And I didn't have to have, I just it wasn't like I made a conscious choice. Like I don't have to do this anymore. It just happened. Somehow I felt different. I think maybe at first it was, I felt safer until I realized, Oh, there's a whole nother issue that I'm going to have to deal with about safe safety in public. But I didn't know it at the time. I just thought, Oh, I'm done with all that. Um, Mm. (laughs) um, And so, and I think that was left over from the separatist days, which are, you know, the world is men's oyster, so to speak, you know, and I knew differently, of course, because I'd been in the military and law enforcement. I knew that that wasn't true, but it's hard sometimes to hold many, many true things at once in your head. So, um, the- so I, I was, I was no, I was less angry 
Yeah. I was less aggressive, if not if, almost not entirely. Um, I started testosterone and my my menstrual cycle just stopped like that, stopped completely. Um, I described it to somebody once as saying that every month I had one week where I was premenstrual, one week where I was menstrual, one week where I was postmenstrual, and one week where I was like just felt normal. And now I have 52 of those weeks every year. That one week, I have it all the time now. I just feel calm and, yeah, just calm, just normal. It feels really good. Hmm. Yeah. I think I had more mood fluctuation pre previous to testosterone in my system. I hmm. have had a um, total hysterectomy, so I don't have ovaries. So I'm not producing as much estrogen as I was before. Hmm. Yeah. The, it, it's interesting. I'm just trying to suss out. So you had, you had society had expectations of you as a woman that you weren't abiding by because you weren't that kind of woman. And so you had to constantly overcompensate for the expect for failing all the expectations and, and or, or disrupting society's expectations. And then once you start to transition those expectations of you being a woman and not being a woman and disappointing those expectations, generally speaking in society, go away. And then you have to deal with the expectation of being a man at some point. You're like, okay, people are gonna people are gonna see me differently. They're gonna see me as a threat or something to threaten. There's a whole power politic that you weren't aware of that men have to deal with. What, yeah, I mean, what insight I was, can you give into the life of men in America by becoming one, emerging into it later in life? I, I think what you said, the way you sort of encapsulated the experience, it's an entirely different frame than I would use because mm. it sounds it sounds too too passive for me. Um, but um, I never felt like I was, you know, the victim of anything. I was always, but I was. I was fighting against it. So it's just, I, I framed it differently, but, but, but it stands right. It, it, you know, it's, it, it makes sense if you just sort of flip it on the other side. Um, but as a man, um, I think the, I, you're right. I didn't know about the sort of power, the dominance hierarchy thing within men. I, I exposed myself to large groups of men pretty early on because I wanted to understand it a little bit more. Like mm -hmm. what, what am I getting myself into kind of thing? And so I, I started going to like men's weekend workshops okay, or, or mixed co-ed workshops where there would be a point in time over the course of the weekend where all the men would separate, right? The men and women would separate. And in the past, if I was in an environment like that, I would, I would um, refuse to go in either group and I'd stand in the middle of the room and say, I'm making space for those who don't want to go to the men's or the women's. And there'd be a few of us and we'd stand our ground, you know, as the androgynous, genderqueer, you know, fabulous people that we were. But in this case, I was like, oh, I'm going to go do this now. Okay. But it, right. And so at first I felt like an imposter, like I was intruding, like they were going to find out any minute that I wasn't supposed to be there. That never happened. Um, and I started listening to men because they would be once they were in male only space, I was like, wow, like these men are they were like crying or they were talking about the strained relationship with their fathers and 
and the kind of abuse they suffered by their mothers or their sister. I was sort of like, I had no idea that men even talked that way, that they had those kinds of struggles. And um, not all of them, of course, but but the ones who weren't, they were so supportive. They put an arm around them. You know, they'd say, you know, there was typically one or two guys in the room that would sort of rally people around like, you know, come over here, men, let's let's show this brother some love. And I thought, what? The women are definitely not doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> it was more like commiserating. That was my experience. Hmm. It was so supportive. Um, and I thought, wow, this is this is fascinating. Um, and typically what I would do is on the last day, I would tell the men that I was a trans man and it never failed every single time. Typically one of those guys, it was, I'll call them the man's man, right? Not cocky, just confident, right? Not, not like tough guy, right? Not the alpha male, the man's man, a very different kind of guy. Hmm. I've noticed that person would come up to me without fail. Almost every time they'd come up to me, um, either in front of the room, like not in front of the room, but in the room with other men or one-on-one, you know, and smack me on the chest, which I wasn't familiar with at first, you know, the smacking on the chest thing or on the back and say, you know, like, you know, nice to meet your brother or welcome to the brotherhood or something like that. And I was like, wow, this is, I, I felt, um, hmm. yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. And I try to share that experience with uh, with trans men, um, that I mentor that are really early in their transition about like, we can't make all these assumptions. There's a lot of assumptions about who cis men are, right? Cisgender men and um, how they were raised and what they think about things. And it's like, oh no, like, I don't want to be summed up in that way. And so I don't sum up other people in that way. And I try to sort of pass that on that I've met some really, really wonderful men. And I was raised by a wonderful man. My father's a wonderful man. And um so, and I know that, I know that there are really, most men are good, right? As a former law enforcement officer, most police are good. Like, right, it's these kinds of things that I know. And um, so I don't, I don't really listen to all that, you hmm. know, that, but it comes up all the time. If I'm in quote unquote FTM space, there's inevitably a group of, of people in that space that will be very, very uh, derogatory and very like dehumanizing towards uh tr- towards you know cis men or men who aren't trans and and i just don't participate in that and i i challenge it but i try and do it in a way that doesn't cause a big scene could you get give an example of how uh that's to fruitfully challenge challenge that yeah um i did it recently i was at a at a all trans men's event a little while ago uh you know a couple weeks ago and somebody made a comment about how how really hard it is to reach you know cis men um, you know, and the way their sexism and their misogyny and the way they're talking in the workplace. And, you know, sometimes they just don't listen. And so I turned to the person and I said, uh, do you listen to them? Like, do you, do you know, right? You might not like what they're saying or how they're saying it. Do you know anything about them and their life story? Because what I have found to be true is that there's a lot of fronting that goes on. Right. It happens a lot with adolescent boys, but I think grown men sometimes still do it when they're a mixed company. They're not sure what to say or how to say it. So they'll sort of test the waters. I don't know if you've experienced that where they might say something, you know, like really outlandish to kind of see like, you know, 
did that just go on? Like nobody said anything? Like, you know, it's like to sort of test the waters. I think that happens all the time. And so I'm like, maybe they just, maybe they don't believe anything they just said, but you'll never know that. You're making an assumption about them because you're rejecting them. You're, uh, but you don't want them to reject you. So the only, you know, I'm like, sometimes we have to be able to meet people where they are, right? That's sort of a social work 101. You meet people where they are. So I take that into that space and say, you know, Maybe next time you could just ask them questions. Um, and I tell them, and I did do it then, I told them the story of a gentleman that I work with through, um, through FAIR, uh, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, Daryl Davis, right? He's a black man who has talked with, you know, countless members of the Ku Klux Klan and over 200 of them have left the Klan as a result of the relationship that he built with them because he listens to them, he talks to them. And he doesn't dehumanize them. He doesn't like the racism, but he treats them like a human being. And so I think we should be treating each other like human beings mm -hmm. and not just generalize, you know, well, cis men and they're anti this or pro that. And it's like, you don't know that. You don't know that. How did you get into social work? When did that come across your radar? I was working in case management Oh, gosh, when was that? Mid-2000s, I was working in case management, and I was wanting to do more work in, in like, healthcare, uh, providing trainings, maybe, like, Trans 101 kind of trainings. And I noticed that the people that were getting those kinds of jobs were either people with Masters of Public Health or Masters of Social Work. Mm -hmm. And... I noticed also the people that do were doing case management and getting higher pay for it were also people with a master's of social work degree. So I decided to look into that. And I, I thought about also like marriage and family therapy and maybe psychology. I looked into a couple of different options, but I really liked the social work um, frame, the lens that social work looks, um, looks at things through. And uh, so I, I selected social work, but it was really because I wanted I, I wanted more access to the things I wanted to do. And I got that access. It did work out the way I, I had hoped. Right out of school, I went to work with the VA and I was a social worker with the VA. And then I transferred over to the DOD and was a social worker with the Navy. And and now I've, I've been freelance for about two years now. But um, I love, you know, I'm doing the kind of work I love doing so. Now you, it's more focused on wellness. I do emotional wellness and personal growth workshops for corporate clients, hmm. for their employees, right? Because yeah. with the pandemic and burnout and all yeah. this, you know, all the stuff going on in the world, it's impacting employees. And so bringing wellness into that space is really important right now. So that's what I do. Hmm. Earlier, you uh, gave an analogy, like if there's uh, some sort of activity or activism going on you're the one going around making sure that everybody's like getting water and know where the bathroom is and and just organizing the space and giving yeah. granting people situational awareness um in or within the grand trans topic um you, know, you have your feminists you have your detransitioners you have your uh, trans people who just kind of want to live their life then you have the radical trans rights activists then you have like all these weird characters in between um the lay of the land it's it, it's a muddy raucous busy place what do you think is something that you could just put out there to give people more orientation who are in mm -hmm. it or who are trying to figure it out like how do we how do we orient ourselves in order for it to decrease in chaos 
and increase in order? Great question, Benjamin. Well, the first thing I would say to people is the trans Twitter world is not the trans world. Right? That's, that's such a small fraction of the members of our community and the, the people who consider themselves allies to the community. Very few of them are on Twitter. Right? Like that's, that, that's not where a lot of the work is being done. Right. So the work is being done in the local areas. Um, it's being done through Facebook groups. That's still really popular in, in the trans community, at least in the FTM community. There's still a lot of Facebook groups. Right. So things that have gone on to like the people who were on Tumblr and went to Tic TikTok, TikTok. Yeah. Like that's a whole different like strain of the trans community that is completely outside of my um, purview. Like I, I don't interact with people that are part of that world. Um, so the majority of what I see are people who are um, going to work every day um, or doing meaningful work in the sense that maybe it's not a salaried or hourly paid job because, you know, they have some sort of disability or they're retired or something. Right. So they're doing meaningful work They're They have families. Um, they're involved in their communities. They're they're just doing good work. Right. Like that's that's the majority of us. We're living our lives and. We're working in those small ways. It's like maybe making sure that in our local area, we have access to competent healthcare providers, right? That we have access to behavioral health specialists who have done more than just a cursory training in trans stuff, right? That there's a lot of websites out there. I think that what happens now, the problem is that with the proliferation of social media and the internet, it's hard to know how to filter things. So it used to be back in the day when I started my transition, the internet was, you know, in its baby phase and there wasn't hardly anything on the internet. You know, I had to look things up through the phone book or go to the library or the LGBT community center. That was, that was typically a place to go or the gay bar, something like that. Now you can type in like transgender into a search engine. Well, you're going to get too many hits, too many results. How do you filter through that? How do you figure that out? And so I recommend that people go somewhere where they can meet people in person, right? Um, even if it's electronically, like digitally, right? There's Discord groups and they do like video chats. There's groups that do Zoom chats. There's even now with, you know, the pandemic, it's not over, of course, but in some places, um, I mean, I think it's over, but in some places they're behaving like it's not over and in some places they are. And so like here in Florida, right, I can go to in-person groups, but there are still the virtual groups. Like there are people that have done what you want to do or what you're doing now. And if you want a different, if you want to have a different kind of conversation, you need to look for different people. Hmm. If you want to be an ally to the community, you have to know that the community is vast, diverse. We are not a monolith. And the reason I say that is because I will have people who refer to themselves as allies to the trans community call me a transphobe because I refer to myself as a transsexual. It's like, well, that, but that's a term I use. And a lot of us use that word. It, so they'll police the, our languaging. So it's like, just don't do that, right? Um, hmm. There's a lot of stuff around pronouns now, pronouns too now that are getting um, challenging for people. Um, should we or shouldn't we compel it, right? People consult with me and corporations, should we or shouldn't we do that? And I don't think it's a good idea to compel it, right? Um, hmm. 
So it's it's one of those things where I, I don't like to be asked my pronouns. And I know lots of transsexuals who don't like to be asked their pronouns. So, And for some people who haven't even started transition, it makes them feel more dysphoric to be asked their pronouns. Mm-hmm. So it's like we have to be careful of, of just sort of that reinforcement. But just know that if you're part of the community or you want to be an ally to the community and you don't like what you see on social media, you could do what I did and just get rid of all of it because I don't have any of it um, or just um, find other outlets because we're out here, we're doing good work mm-hmm. and um, you know, we're making the world a better place by working with people, not against people. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the big difference, right? We're not, we're not dehumanizing people, calling them names, right? Um, I don't. I would never refer to somebody as a turf, right? That's. I don't resort to name calling, and most of us don't, mm-hmm. right? If you're seeing that, that's that's not the community. That's certain members who are claiming to be part of the community, but we don't really know. I mean, you can't really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's helpful. Um, I really appreciate getting to speak with you and being able to incorporate your story and your wisdom into this series of mine on this topic. Um, it's it, it's just it's good. You have a, you're a good person, and you bring good stuff to the table. And and uh, I I we need more goodness in the world in order to take down the the craziness quotient a little bit and and also give people hope. Well, I mean, thank you, Benjamin. I mean, what I'll say is that, you know, I've watched a bunch of your videos. um, And one of the things that I appreciate about appreciate about the work that you're doing, um, even outside of gender stuff, you know, you you talk to a lot of different people. And I, I, I I was introduced to you in the beginning, because you were covering the stuff that was happening um, at Evergreen college that's how i i learned about you uh back in the day and so it's it you don't know i don't know whether you agree or disagree with the people you're talking to like you keep a really um sort of that open frame that curious frame you don't seem to um sort of weigh in too much you just sort of ask questions let people talk and i appreciate that because there are people that you've interviewed that have said things that I'm like, well, that, that just sounds wrong, but I don't know what their experience is. Um, but I, my, my hope is that you don't receive too much grief because you do have a very broad audience um, or it's not really the audience. Well, probably that too, but you have a, a broad spectrum of people you interview. And so I would imagine that people can make up their minds about, oh, oh, that Benjamin, he must be a such and such because he talked to so and so. And it's like, that's, you know, that's just, that's too limited. It's like, mm. it's really broad. And so to be part of that, you know, I appreciate that. I just appreciate that you, that you were interested um, in, in talking with me and that, um, yeah. And, you know, my intention is not to counter anybody who's ever been interviewed by you on this topic. Um, but just to add a whole nother layer to it or another segment perhaps to that, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. everybody's living their own life, right? This idea that we're we're becoming our authentic selves and we're we have our own lived experience. I don't know when all of a sudden it became, oh no, no, no. No, not that kind of authenticity, not that kind of lived experience. You have to have these approved kinds of lived experience your lived experience isn't approved. And that's sort of, 
Um, nobody's said those exact words to me, of course, but um, I have been called all kinds of names and canceled from events. Um, and people write all kinds of ugliness about me on Facebook, which thankfully I don't see because I'm not mm. on Facebook, <laughs> but people tell me about it. And so, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it is what it is. Um, mm. But for me, I'm like, well, this is my authentic self. I'm speaking from my heart and my lived experience. And uh, that's, that's all I have. That's, that's it. You know? Well, so you say that you, you deleted all of the social media, but do you have a blog out there or a book out there? If people want to hear more from you and, and learn more from you, where can they go or what the, can they find? Sure. Is sm um, smattering of podcasts here and there? I, I, I'm a guest on podcasts fairly re regularly. Hmm. Um, I have a website, so it's xanderkeg.net, and so that will that will take you to a bunch of information about me. I wrote a blog in 2007 that I had planned on continuing with, but you know how that happens. It was called mm -hmm. the Tao of transition. Mm -hmm. And I was using Taoist um, ideas or, or principles to, to frame my transition. Um, it was a, you know, it was a good effort, but I, you know, I got lost in other things, but I think I wrote maybe three, three posts. So if mm -hmm. people want to look up Dow of Transition, that's on that's out there in, in the interwebs. Um, yeah, and so on my webpage, you'll see like the books that I um, published and the documentaries mm -hmm. that I've been in and things like that, and some mm -hmm. YouTube videos and podcasts. So it's some of, they're not all on there, but enough to let people know you know who I am and what I'm about. And you're also working with Fair Foundation yeah. uh, against. Uh something in racism and other intolerance intolerance and racism what, what, other organizations that you think people should, you want to put on people's radar um there's the let's see um uh, the institute for liberal values hmm. is um it's a it's like a collaboration or coalition of organizations um doing good work in the world so for example like uh free black thought and hmm. um uh, Integrity Matters by Jody Shaw. Mm -hmm. uh, she was from Smith College. Um, mm -hmm. um, a counter Counterweight um, with Helen Pluckrose. So there, it's like a oh, it's like a consortium or a collaboration mm -hmm. coalition of all these different. There's a bunch more in there doing some yep. really great work around the country. All the same um, libs, basically. Yeah, the, <laughs> like the true, like the true kind of. Um, you know, uh, enlightenment area, era, era values kind of liberals. Yeah. yeah. And that's what FAIR is all about, too. I'm a senior fellow with FAIR and on the advisory board. So I do a lot of things. And, you know, part of the issue is that there are people on the advisory board get labeled as uh, conservatives, but in like in a derogatory way. Because like to be conservative is not derogatory, but they'll use it like, oh, they're conservative. Or they won't say that. They'll say right wing that's the language they'll use. I mean, some people think that there's members of the advisory board that are left wing. So that's when you know you're sort of, we're nonpartisan. So that's when you know you're sort of hitting almost a sweet spot yeah, because yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think Megan Kelly is right wing and she's on the advisory board. Hmm. Um, but we have like Peter Bogosian and um, Jonathan Haidt and Steven Pinker and Abigail Schreier. Abigail Schreier is one of the people that that people are angry about. Like they ask me, why am I part of something that Abigail Schreier is part of? It's like, well, because, you know, I am and we talk and we, we've done panels together and, 
She doesn't talk about trans adults. She has trans adult friends. She's more focused on the trans kids. And that's not my wheelhouse. That's not my scope of practice. I don't, I don't have anything to do with the trans kids. I haven't researched it. I haven't, you know, gone down that alley. She has to the to degree to which she's done that. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's, you know, we don't all have to agree with each other. We're not on the advisory board because we all agree with each other. It's that we agree with the principles yeah, yeah. of FAIR. One of which is a free association and associating with people that you disagree with. Absolutely. So that we don't get locked into groupthink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a danger right now. Yeah. Well, Xander, I'm going to wrap up the recorded uh, part of the interview. I'm sure that tons of people are going to thoroughly enjoy this. And I did as well. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you so much.